Hi, everybody. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Back to chat about a contentious and challenging Supreme Court, I guess you could say, decision, uh, if you could put it that way. We have uh, Terrence Pelt. He's the president of the Center for Individual Rights, which you can find at cir-usa.org. And Rebe- Rebecca Friedrichs, who is uh, a teacher who has been working um, for Yeoman's Years on this uh, particular issue. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So for those of us who didn't watch our previous conversation, um, can you give us some background on the impetus and principles behind the court case that has been wending its way to the top of the pyramid for quite some time? Well, we're challenging, or we were challenging, the laws in 23 states that require all public employees to pay uh, union dues, uh, even in cases where they do not support what the union is, uh, is pushing for. In our view, compulsory union dues violate the First Amendment. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, although it looked like we were going to win in January, a month later, Justice Scalia passed away and we lost the fifth vote that we had for our side of the case. We then petitioned the court to hold the case over until a new justice could be appointed next term. Uh, But last week, the court denied that petition. Uh, So the case is effectively over, uh, although we're free to file a new case. Uh, which we obviously will consider seriously doing once we see uh, what the new Supreme Court looks like. Right. The idea that you're forced to pay for collective bargaining um, is challenging, I think, on First Amendment grounds. But there seemed to be an odd decision floating around legally, which was something like this. And perhaps you can help me sort of unpack it. (laughs) It's something like, well, it's fine if you disagree with what the union is doing in your own mind. However, you cannot act upon it by refusing to provide them the funds to pursue a political agenda that you don't agree with. In other words, you can have a thought crime against the left, but you can't actually act on it. Does that make any sense to anyone? Like you you have freedom of speech, but you can't speak in public and you can't have a newspaper and you can't act on it in any way whatsoever. Well, it makes very little sense and in fact, in fact runs counter to over 100 years of uh, case law and tradition uh, in which the Supreme Court has repeatedly held that if the First Amendment means anything, it protects people's right to express their point of view, even when that point of view uh, is unpopular or runs counter to what what the state, uh, you know, favors. So, uh, you know, look, during the Vietnam War, the Supreme Court uh, upheld the right of high school students to wear black armbands. The court didn't say, as the school officials had hoped it would say, well, these students are free to disagree with the Vietnam War in their own mind. The court correctly held that if speech means anything in a democracy, it means people expressing their point of view so that others can hear it. And we have a tradition in this country of broadly protecting expression. We generally do not let the government uh, silence speech or silence the expression of speech based on the point of view being expressed. That's the key point here. The government has to remain neutral between all points of view and allow the citizens themselves to make up their own mind on the basis of what they actually hear, not on the basis of what the government wants them to hear. And there seems to be a question about the political activism of unions. Now, from the outside, it looks to me like political like unions are inherently political. They're not just out there saying, well, we'd like some um, additional parent-teacher days, we'd like some a little bit of pay, some more benefits, and so on. I mean, they seem to be using 
their legal crane to scoop up vast amounts of resources from their members and generally pump them nine times out of ten to the Democratic Party, which is a very political approach. They're not politically right. neutral. And so the idea that uh, from the union perspective, I'm sure it's something like this. They say, well, don't be a free rider. You know, we're out here collecting. Uh, uh, we're, we're collectively bargaining on your behalf. We're raising your standard of living. We're getting you more time off. We're getting you better benefits, uh, more job security. So if you don't pay for that activity, you're kind of being a free rider. But my understanding is it's not that collective bargaining with regards to salaries and so on that is the major contention, but rather the degree to which forced union dues are being applied to political causes that go against the wishes of many members. Well, I think that uh, what we're challenging is not just the overt political expenditures, the contributions to the Democratic Party. Public employees can already opt out of at least uh, a portion of those direct political expenditures. What we're talking about is the political agenda the union furthers through its collective bargaining. When a local uh, teachers union negotiates for higher salaries, it's basically arguing for a bigger slice of the tax pie uh, going to education rather than, say, uh, parks or Mm -hmm. libraries or any other thing that local officials uh, might decide is important. That's a political issue. Uh, Many, you know, public employees agree with the union's priorities, but some teachers and some public employees do not. And they should be free to not have to financially support uh, the union's political agenda that it pursues even during collective bargaining. Uh, so I think it's across the board. The union, as you say, the unions are very political. They're not just political in their affiliation with the Democratic Party. They're also pursuing a political agenda during collective bargaining. And that's what we think individuals have a right uh, to, to decide for themselves whether they want to support or not. Right. I'd like to add a little bit to that, if I could, and that is that uh, what the unions do with the money that they say is overtly political, the portion that we are permitted to opt out of, um, is they place people in office who are uh, on the union side. So then you have, during collective bargaining, they use the money that's supposedly for collective bargaining, and they're bargaining with people who agree with the union. So you have the union on both sides of the table, and uh, that's highly political. So no matter how you slice the whether the money is overtly political or part of collective bargaining, it's all political. And then they take very political stances. Uh, for example, this last in first out is a, a collectively bargained decision. So when layoffs come, whoever is the last one hired is the first one fired, even if it's the teacher of the year. That's political. That's bad for children. So those of us who are forced to fund these ideas, uh, uh, for many of us, we're funding things that go against our very moral integrity. Uh, So it's very troubling, whether it's uh, politics or collective bargaining. To what effect did the death of Justice Scalia, um, in a sense, predetermine the outcome of the latest or the last round? Well, we had five votes, and when Justice Scalia died, we had four votes, and that made it into a split decision, a 4-4 tie vote. And in those circumstances, uh, it means that the existing law remains in place, and in this case, the existing law, we feel, violates the First Amendment. 
So essentially, the death of Justice Scalia meant uh, this was a lost opportunity. We had in our hand the opportunity to fix this problem once and for all, and we lost that opportunity. So we will now be looking for another case, another opportunity uh, to get the issue back before the court. I mean, the reality is that there are tens of thousands of public employees who are highly dissatisfied with the political agenda of their union. They don't want to support it. And under the First Amendment, they shouldn't have to support it. So we will look for a legal remedy. If we can't find a legal remedy or we're unsuccessful in pursuing a legal remedy, uh, then I think it's likely that we will see uh, situations like we saw in Wisconsin several years ago where uh, public employees pursue a legislative fix and the res with the result being that it's a highly contentious, uh, you know, very divisive fight before the state legislature uh, to try to trim back uh, and make the union more accountable to the actual wishes of its individual members. Either way, though, either in the courts or through state legislatures, uh, this, this problem is going to get fixed eventually. And uh, can I add to that as well? Please. Um, it, when Justice Scalia died, uh, that was a very rough day for myself and for all the folks out there that have been following our case. And um, what I want to say is we all worked very hard to gain a voice. We were all voiceless. We've been voiceless for decades, um, ever since we've been forced to fund these unions against our will. So we finally were able to get out there and make our voices heard. And so we were all so full of hope. And so what I've noticed from sort of the boots on the ground perspective is since Justice Scalia died and since our petition for rehearing was denied, that there are a lot of people out there who are feeling hopeless today. So the reason I wanted to add this is I just want to say to those people, I'm in this for the long haul. I'm going to keep fighting. Uh, I may not have a case in front of the court anymore and my fellow plaintiffs don't as well. But I'm in it for the long haul, and I hope, I hope and hope and pray that your listeners out there are in it too, because we need their help. So uh, we'll just tackle this from a different angle. Looking at it from the outside again, it seems to me that the Supreme Court has one job, and that job is to adjudicate where other courts have failed to um, resolve the issue. It seems strange to me that when you have one job, you know, like you go to the barber and say, can you cut my hair? And he says, no, I'm not going to cut your hair. It's like, well, then why are you a barber? And the idea that the Supreme Court, which is responsible for adjudicating what can be adjudicated outside of the Supreme Court, the sort of last port of call for decision making, says, well, we're not going to really uh, make a decision. And not only are we not going to make a decision right now, but you can't even refile when the Supreme Court vacancy has been Filled. That seems so overtly political that um, I don't even know really how to process it. Well, <clears throat> I think the problem that we've got right now is the two sides on the court are politically uh, very divided. And uh, while there are certain issues that they can decide together and reach a compromise and it sort of all works out, there are some issues where one side or the other just simply refuses to give. And that's what we have here. We have four votes on one side and four votes on the other until there's a ninth justice, uh, the court really can't function. I mean, you're absolutely right about that. So, uh, look, democratic institutions are imperfect. Sometimes they take time. Uh, this is an example where we should have had a decision in hand by now, uh, but we're going to have to wait. Uh, the wait may be worth it, though, because at the end of the day, we will get an authoritative decision from the court, uh, and it will be binding, and the country will respect it. And that's, you know, when the court works, 
uh, it works very well. And sometimes we just have to wait for that, and that's the situation we're in right now. What does the non-precedential per curiam opinion mean, uh, the idea that their decision sets no precedent? That seems very against the sort of common law traditions of the West. Well, if there were a majority of justices for one side or the other, there would be a precedent and it would be binding. But since there aren't, uh, it's really essentially a null decision. There's no decision. The court can't make a decision uh, under these circumstances. So existing law remains in place until the Supreme Court is able to act. Now, the situation that came up recently in Chicago, uh, Joseph O'Call, a math teacher and chess coach, seemed to get hev- he, he seemed to get heavily penalized. Uh, so there was a strike uh, with the Chicago Teachers Union on two dates. And uh, he said, look, I want to show up for the kids. Uh, it's bad for the kids if I'm on strike. And um, I think his, his chess team actually won uh, some championship, probably partly as a result of his dedication to his children and their education, or his students and their education. And um, he got uh, kicked out of the union. Is, is that not a violation of freedom of movement, of freedom of employment? How does that relate to what, what you guys are up to? Well, you know, I'd love to take that one. <laughs> I can so relate to Joseph Cole. I cannot wait to meet this man. I'm trying to find him. Um, he is the perfect example of why teachers like myself and public sector employees across this country are so discouraged that we are forced to fund organizations that run totally, completely against our moral code, our beliefs, our, our uh, even our, just our commitment. So Joseph Acola is committed to these low-income students who probably would have no other opportunity to do so well in chess. They've won and been recognized at a national level for their chess playing skills. Imagine what that's doing for their brain power and for their futures, the connections they're making. What a great teacher. We should be celebrating him. But what happens? Because he refuses to go on strike. By the way, they'd already received several uh, pay raises. They're one of the highest paid districts in the country. And he says, I'm doing what's right for my students. So here's the kicker. The union kicks him out because he dares to cross the picket line. He dares to do what's right for the kids that he is paid to serve. So he does what's right. And here's what didn't make it into the story. He was kicked out of the union. That's right. But he still has to pay forced fees to the union to supposedly represent him. So they're not representing his best interests, his desires. Uh, They claim they represent the children and do what's right for the children. They're doing exactly what's wrong for the children. So he's a great example. I'm glad you brought him up. More power to Joseph O'Cool. And Terrence, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Well, Rebecca is exactly right. The problem here isn't that the union kicked them out. They're free to kick, you know, it's a private organization. They can kick anybody out they want. The unbelievable part of this and the unconstitutional part of it is that they, he has to continue to force, to, yeah, sorry, he has to continue to pay dues to this organization, even though there's a complete split between his interests and the union's interests, between his views of what's important and the union's views of what's important. The First Amendment protects his right to decide for himself how to spend his money and what views to support. And yet, uh, Illinois state law requires him 
to support this union that has absolutely no interest at all in, uh, in, in furthering or representing his views. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And, and from a larger perspective, because um, whenever the topics of unions come up, I think it's important, at least for me, to be clear about the, um, the free market case for them, that unions are a voluntary association and perfectly valid. You know, freedom of association uh, allows you to associate and, and make collective agreements with whoever you want. In the private sector, you know, of course, the, um, uh, the uh, owners of a particular factory have a profit motive, which may be partly incentivizing them to drive down wages. So they have a certain amount of power they can hire and fire, and the workers can get together and make a sort of countervailing weight to that profit motive. And so in the private uh, uh, sector, in the free market, unions to me seem perfectly appropriate and healthy. Now, uh, the, uh, they should not have the power to shut down a business entirely and have no one cross picket lines, you know, because we always want the balance of powers in society. Whoever gets too much power almost inevitably tends to get corrupt. But in the public sector, things are very different. And they're different, I think, on, on two levels. One is that there is this closed shop mentality and forced union dues. And secondly, the desire to oppose the union uh, there's no particular financial incentive. If you run a factory and the workers want too much money, well, you are going to fight back because you want your business to continue. And if you can't compete because of excessive labor costs, you're going to have an incentive to fight back. On the public sector side, though, and originally um, there was no collective bargaining or even unions allowed in, Amer in the American public sector because it was kind of recognized that there's not this countervailing balance of wanting to stay in business because you can't not stay in business if you're the government. So I just want to be clear that um, when the union, and as you point out, when they appoint people to political positions where they're negotiating with people or they help get them elected or appointed, when they're negotiating with people who agree with them, uh, you end up with a very slippery slope to excessive spending, uh, to inefficiency and so on. And this would be some way of bringing a discipline into or a restriction or a restraint into what now seems uh, like the capacity of public sector unions to write their own checks. And if they can't get checks uh, in terms of salary, then they'll get them in terms of retirement benefits or deferred benefits of some kind or another, which I know in California under CalPERS is a huge problem. So this capacity to at least say the unions in the public sector must be somewhat more responsive to the preferences of their members is one way of curbing what is not a matter of uh, freedom of association and so on, but the awesome power that um, a monopoly has when collectively bargaining with people who agree with it and who aren't personally liable for any of the money they promise. No, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, uh, in California, the teachers have to join the union as a condition of employment. That means that the unions get tens of millions of dollars each year in essentially mandatory free dues provided to the union by the state no matter what the union does. The employees have no voice in this whatsoever and as a result the union is totally unaccountable uh, to uh, the individual members of the union, the people paying the dues. Uh, add to that the fact that the union then uses those tens of millions of dollars to elect a state legislature that's very friendly to the union and to its interests and essentially you have created the largest uh, private political power in the state that's accountable to no one. Uh, there's just no check on the union. So if we, if we had won this case, uh, we would have introduced some accountability here. At least some members of the union would have been able to stand up and say, no, we don't want to support this. And the union would have had to compete for the dues of its members, for the allegiance of its members, with policies that the members actually supported. So it would not have been it was not an effort to end unions. 
uh, or to end collective bargaining. If we'd won, the CTA would have still been the designated collective bargaining agent. But if we'd won, it would have introduced some accountability into the equation in California. And for the first time, the union would have had to compete for uh, those dues instead of being able to rely on getting them automatically from the state, regardless what uh, positions the unions took. And I think, and, and um, uh, if you could uh, comment on this, Rebecca, it seems to me, maybe this is idealistic, but it's not easy to stand up against the crowd or stand up against the group. And uh, if people find out that you're opposing the union, sometimes they don't like it. And given the teacher in Chicago's dedication to his students, it would seem to me that the people who would be most likely to oppose what the union is doing may well be composed or overlap with the, with the teachers who are most concerned about their students. In other words, they're saying, look, something the union is doing, maybe it's the, um, the last in, first out policy or, or the job protection of, that generally exists for pe- teachers who are underperforming, that something the union is doing is negatively impacting the quality of education experienced by the students. And it seems that to give uh, more of a voice, to give more of a pushback to the teachers who seem most concerned with the students couldn't be anything but great in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to help those teachers because you, you nailed it on the head. It's the the most passionate teachers, the ones who love the kids the most. It's the ones who work the hardest, who are there hour after hour, who are the most frustrated with the unions, particularly when they find out what the unions are up to. Um, but, you know, most of those teachers are too afraid to speak out. Uh, the, te- the general teacher personality, it, I mean, think about it. They're people who love little children. They're mild, meek kind of go along to get along kind of people. So uh, many of them are just terrified. Uh, the, the most common experience I had during this case was loving teachers pulling me aside, but always in a dark closet or a quiet area, private area, and, and thanking me or hugging me or telling me they were praying for me and rooting for me. And those are the ones that are discouraged today because uh, they're too afraid to speak out. When you speak out against the union, you're bullied. You know, uh, they called us all sorts of names, my uh, fellow plaintiffs and me. None of them were true, but uh, nobody wants to be uh, shunned or uh, called names or, or made to look like a fool or feel uncomfortable at work. And, and oh boy, they make sure that you feel that way when you speak out against them. And that's part of the lack of accountability. I agree with Terry. If we could have won this case, and, and we will keep pushing uh, toward getting this freedom for public sector workers in some way, if we can do that, we create accountability. And uh, then people won't be picked on when they speak up. Because guess what? We're paying the bill. Shouldn't we be the boss in this situation? Shouldn't we have a voice? So I sort of get, this, uh, I sort of get this image of teachers taking you into a washroom, turning on the taps, <laughs> you know, taking the batteries out of the cell phone. Thank you. Okay. okay. That never, that never happened. Exactly right. They literally look up and say, are there cameras in here? <laughs> they're, that, they're that frightened. And I think the American public needs to know that, that teachers are being bullied by a union they're forced to fund. And this is allowed. This is legal in our free country. It's just wrong. So 
next steps? I mean, obviously, it's uh, fairly dependent on who gets the next seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, if it's uh, on the uh, left, if it's a Democrat, then uh, I guess things are going to get kind of challenging. If it's somebody on the right, which I guess would, would mean that uh, should Trump get in in the fall, that it would be more likely to be along those situations. Is this a wait and see who's the next Supreme Court nominee or who gets accepted? Or um, is there something more proactive that you guys are working on um, ahead of that information? Well, uh, there are several, uh, you know, avenues that we could take. One would be uh, to just refile a case exactly like uh, the case we filed on behalf of Rebecca and her co-plaintiffs. Another would be to file a more modest case that asks the court to uh, to, uh, strike down the current rules that require teachers to opt out of the political portion of the dues and instead require the unions to encourage the teachers to opt in. Uh, right now, the system favors uh, teachers staying in the union and, or sorry, teachers just going along and paying these political dues. Uh, we would ask the court to create a system that favored uh, the teachers themselves and their individual choice and force the union to uh, approach the teachers and, and get their affirmative consent before it started withholding uh, money for political expenditures. That would be a big step forward. It's sort of a half a loaf compared with what we were looking for in the Friedrichs case, but it would make a big difference. So that's a possible legal approach to this problem. Uh, and then if we are totally unable to get anywhere in the federal courts, uh, there are state courts. There are many states, in fact, almost every state uh, has a First Amendment or an equivalent of the First Amendment in its state constitution. So we would look for states where we could file the same kind of case uh, and win it in the state court. So, you know, I think that the short answer is there's a basic fundamental uh, problem here, a constitutional problem with compulsory dues. Uh, there are a number of legal avenues to approach that problem, and we will uh, look at all of them and uh, pick the one that seems most effective under the circumstances. But again, if we are unable to resolve this in the courts, it's totally open to state legislatures to fix this problem. Uh, it involves a pretty bloody fight in the states where, you know, this has to happen. But it can happen and it will happen because the reality is there are 30 to 40 percent of public employees who fundamentally disagree with the way uh, that what their unions are doing and are forced to fund that. And in a free society, uh, that type of a situation, uh, it just is not likely to last. People will find a way out of it one way or the other. Well, you know, and I'd like to add that, uh, 82% of the American public think that no one should be forced to fund an organization against their will. So the, the public's definitely on our side. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, because I'm not the legal person here, I was the plaintiff, I'm, I'm the teacher who's being uh, negatively impacted and whose students are being harmed. Um, from my perspective, I'm going to speak out as much as I can. I plan to give uh, ideas toward policy, anyone who will listen to me. Um, I plan to continue telling my story. If any of your listeners have a story to share, I'd love to hear it. Uh, share their story. Just just continue getting our voices out there. It's, it's, um, it's so important for the American voter to start paying attention to, to who the unions are funding. Quit voting for those people. You know, <laughs> if you want to, to have freedom from from being compelled to fund a union, you have to stop voting for the people that they're backing. And and that would help us a ton. Right, right. Well, I certainly admire your perseverance in pursuing this, and I am, of course, very sorry 
uh, that, um, I don't know, Justice Scalia's penchant for Ferragini Alfredo seems to have uh, blocked his arteries in your progress. But um, uh, for people who want to know more about this, uh, please go to cir-usa.org. We'll put the link below. Uh, you know, they need support. They need encouragement. They need help because it, it can't be considered anywhere close to democracy to force people to pay for that which they oppose. That's treating them more as livestock than sovereign citizens. So I really appreciate uh, um, your time, uh, your effort in, in this struggle, and I hope that we can help get the word out. Thanks so much for chatting today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for helping us tell our story.